From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature. Real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Megan Fury. This time, a chance encounter sends one writer on a quest to solve a mystery. Couldn't shake that one day. I, my whole world was going to be blown up by the fact that he had emerged somewhere and was calling to say, hey, what's up? Ben McGrath lives in New York, not far from the Hudson River. He loves it there, and so do his wife and two kids. Ben would often get up before everyone else and take his kayak out on the river. He enjoyed the stillness and beauty of the early morning. One day in early September 2014, Ben and his young son were down by the riverbank playing. And my neighbor said he might want to step inside and meet this guy in my house. He's paddling a canoe from Canada to Florida. Right away, I'm kind of looking left and right, like up the river and down the river, and just sort of imagining the idea that you can get from here to there in a, a really kind of crappy-looking plastic canoe. And it was just like heaped with stuff. So I go inside, and there's this guy. I, I've described him as a little bit like Hillbilly Santa Claus, and he was wearing denim overalls and muddy boots. And he had a patchy beard, and his face was like, as you might imagine if you're on a river for a few months, just really, really red. So this really red-faced guy with like a belly laugh. My initial impression was just of amazement. A person has been transplanted from a completely different context into our suburban life. His name was Dick Conant. He was 63 years old when Ben met him, and that first meeting was brief. Ben had to leave his neighbor's house pretty quickly to take his son home. But he couldn't stop thinking about this mysterious man. Later that night, I tried looking him up online, and I could find almost nothing about it. The idea that a person doing something pretty noteworthy could basically have almost slipped notice of the World Wide Web was kind of striking. In my mind, there's almost kind of glorifying this idea of like, this is the last untracked man. The next day, Ben went searching for Dick down by the river. He was curious and wanted to get to know him better. After a bit of searching, he found him camped out on the bank. Ben approached cautiously. He didn't want to startle him. Dick was surprised, but happy to see Ben. He invited him to sit and eat with him. The diet was a real interesting thing in general. He had a spread of cheese and condiments in front of him. And then I noticed, like, just casually, like, without thinking about it, starts unscrewing uh, the Tabasco bottle and pouring little shots of Tabasco into the cap and then shooting Tabasco. And then he was sipping soy sauce straight from the bottle. I asked him about it, and he was kind of embarrassed. And then he explained that what he was trying to do was energize the flavor buzz. 
one of the things I was most interested in was I'd been imagining after the first meeting, well, what does he eat? I was sort of fantasizing, like, oh, well, this guy's living naturally. He's out in the river, maybe he's catching crabs and cooking them on a camping stove. Ben was way off. Dick had a big cooler in his canoe. He opened it up and showed Ben his go-to meal. Kosher Franks in a dill pickle jar. He explained that this was his kind of dietary staple, his sort of fallback. When he would go into certain towns, he could get fresh food. But if he was on long stretches between towns, his protein source was pickled hot dogs. Ben also got a good look at Dick's canoe. It was dirty, red, and filled to the brim with stuff. Big army surplus duffels and tarps and trash bags. As I later learned, it's a pretty carefully honed system. The trash bags were a flotation device. He had like bags within bags within bags that tracked air so that everything would still float if it swamped. And he had 17 toothbrushes. He had like five gallon sized jugs of water that he moved around the hull of the canoe in different arrangements to kind of counteract the wave action. He had endless reading material, newspapers, books, and he was taking notes on these road atlases, which is another another one of those kind of discordant details that, that's lodged in my brain pretty quickly, which is here you have a person who's envisioning a map of the United States and seeing it not through highways, but through waterways. And yet, how is he navigating? Road atlases. One of the strangest details, he had a laptop, and it was buried deep in one of his dry bags, and he said he didn't intend to turn the laptop on until he reached Florida. It turns out Dick was very well-read and a prolific writer. He kept detailed notes of all his travels, where he went, what happened in each of those places, and every person he met along the way, which was a lot. Like Ben, people just seemed drawn to him. He had also written three other novels about paddling adventures, though none of them were ever published. Turns out Dick had paddled solo all over the United States. When he reached his final destination, Naples, Florida, he planned on booting up that laptop and starting his next book about this trip. Dick decided to stay in the area for a few days to rest up before continuing on. He was about two months into his journey at this point and figured it would take him another six to reach Florida. I was trying to think through just like the gargantuan logistical hurdles. He explained these trips would take six months or a year, or even more. And so I, I went back to him and I said, out of curiosity, what do you do with your house or your apartment while you're gone? Like, do you sublet it, or how, how does that work? And he kind of hesitated for a little bit, and then he said, well, but I don't have a house. I'm homeless. And then he said, well, people call it homeless. I don't. 
in a layperson's sense, he was what many people would consider homeless. He chose not to think of it that way. He chose to think of it as living outside in an intentional way. But when he was not paddling a canoe, he was living in what he called the swamp in Bozeman, Montana, underneath a lean-to. I wasn't initially worried about him. Then after I got to know him a little bit, I did worry about it. Part of that is because, well, A, doing something that seems a little bit dangerous and daring. B, I really liked him. There was something extremely engaging about him and yet also vulnerable. He spoke extremely warmly about his social interactions with other people all around the country. But on some level, I knew something wasn't perfect in his life. He was older than me, and so in some sense, he was wiser than me. He was not shy about how happy certain elements of his lifestyle were. But he was also very frank about the trade-offs associated with that. Saying, look, I would love to have a stable family life to come home to, but I don't. And so this is the alternative. Eventually, Dick had to continue on his way. Ben's time with him had been short, but very impactful. Like Dick, Ben is also a prolific writer. A staff writer for The New Yorker, in fact. So a few days after he departed, Ben wrote a short Talk of the Town piece about Dick titled Southbound. It was widely read and well-received. Interestingly, Ben says if Dick's story had been pitched to him in a press release, he would have passed on it. We are now exposed to so many people who are professionally competing for our attention. Even social media has encouraged this, like everyone thinks of themselves as a brand. It became quickly clear that he wasn't doing this to call attention to himself. He was doing it for the betterment of himself. After the article was published, Ben's life continued on as normal. I wrote this story about him, and I kind of figured that was the end of it. I emailed him the article. He replied to me a month later from a library in Delaware saying he'd read it. He liked it. I think I wrote back to that saying, let's keep in touch. But again, you don't really expect to keep in touch with that many people who drift in and out of your life. Three months after we first met, I get this phone call from a, a number I didn't recognize. I almost didn't answer and the person at the other end of the line said, Ben McGrath? And I said, yes. Uh, and he said, well, I'm investigating a missing boater. And I just kind of froze. Oh, boy. It turned out that he was a wildlife ranger in North Carolina. And he explained he was in the middle of an active investigation in, into a missing person.
Dick's canoe had been found floating upside down in a stream by a father and son who were out fishing. The contents of the canoe were scattered underneath, bobbing around in the water. It looked bad. The father later said he didn't want to get any closer for fear of what he might see, so he called 911. The sheriff's department towed the canoe in and gathered whatever they could from the scene. Amongst the dime store paperbacks, mountains of receipts, and camera equipment, they found a soggy piece of paper with an email address and a phone number written on it. It was Ben's. Ben was in shock. And my first instinct was to say, like, don't be scared, don't worry. He probably at a library, maybe he's at a, a dive bar, he likes to drink a little bit and tell stories. So you'll find him. And then it was kind of clear that he wasn't he wasn't interested in that line of, of reasoning. So I was kind of stuck at that point and I was sad. But also feeling helpless. Like what can I do? So Ben did the only thing he could. He waited. A few weeks later, he got an email from a friend of the Conant family. It turns out Dick Conant had eight siblings. The email said a few of them lived on the East Coast, not far from Ben, and they were interested in speaking with him. Dick was still missing at this point, and there were no developments in his case. It had gone cold. When you're dealing with a large body of water, the, the Coast Guard and other agencies will get involved. But once they, once they don't think that they're dealing with a rescue, but instead a recovery, the priority recedes a little bit. So while he waited for news, Ben met with Dick's brothers. They shared stories about him as a child. Ben learned their father was in the Army, so they moved a lot. Their parents' marriage was an unhappy one, and they eventually divorced. Dick was a member of the National Honor Society in high school and class president. He played varsity soccer in college and was described as a girl magnet. It was the complete opposite image of the man Ben held in his mind. There were clearly many layers to Dick Conant. Dick's brothers also gave Ben copies of the books he had written about his journeys. Ben thanked them and headed back home. And then one thing led to another, and then I heard from the brother down in Georgia, who it turned out had actually gone to North Carolina to collect the belongings in the canoe. So his brother drove like eight hours, took all that wet stuff, brought it home to his house in Georgia, and kind of laid it out on his driveway to dry it out in the sun, and then started mailing some of the material to me. Ben happily accepted the items. He had been tossing an idea around in his mind. He wanted to learn as much as possible about Dick and eventually write a book. There had still been no word on his case, and at the time, Ben wasn't sure if he was setting out to solve a mystery or write a tribute but he embarked on the project anyways. After his brother dried out all the stuff that had been in the canoe, started looking through it, 
he had been annotating his travels. There were lots of written notes about what he was up to. One of the things those annotations led to was a storage locker. The storage locker was in Bozeman, Montana. That's where Dick lived when he wasn't out paddling. So I accompanied his brother to Bozeman to open the storage locker and see what was in there. Uh, And what was in there was a lot of things. There were thousands of photographs in the locker. Ben also found hundreds of maps, composition books, and diaries. Dick had kept essays and short stories he had written in college, files from his time in the Navy, and even papers he had filled out while seeking alcohol treatment after getting a DUI in the 70s. And then there were the receipts. Dick had a real thing for keeping receipts. There were thousands of them, organized and bundled up with rubber bands. It was overwhelming. Ben had a lot of information to sort through, but he also wanted to talk to more people who knew Dick. He wasn't just sort of journaling in the sense of collecting his own thoughts and impressions of of life lived along a river. He would kind of, in an almost obsessive way, he would write down the names and in some cases even the addresses or phone numbers of everyone he met. He was sort of collecting friends. And so that became a kind of a roadmap for me. I would just pick a name. I ended up calling more than 200. Ben was worried people would hang up on him. Why was this guy from New York calling them? But then he asked if they remembered a man who looked like a hillbilly Santa Claus paddling through their town in a canoe. That was like a magic phrase. The minute I would say that, people would be like, are you kidding me? We were just talking about him. I found a couple who, he had met these people in 1993. So 20 years before I'm calling them. And they said, we were just talking about him the other day. And this happened again and again and again. He leaves an impression on these people and it never goes away. Dick had clearly left an impression on people all across the country. Ben was amazed, but he got it. Here he was, digging up everything he could on a man he had only met a few times. When he had the chance, Ben began to travel the country to meet up with some of these folk. Everyone was more than happy to talk to him. The range of people who remembered him and were attracted to him was much broader than you might imagine. Regan, dumpster diving types, but also lawyers and professional athletes. Like, you know, he had an interaction with a, with a major league baseball pitcher. Professors, accountants, and priests. I mean, it was just the whole, the whole range of, of society all found their own way into seeing in him something that they liked about themselves. Ben started seeing parts of the country he had never experienced before. He visited towns with populations as small as 14 people. Folks bought him drinks at local bars and invited him into their homes. They shared stories about Dick and themselves. 
In a way, this project had brought Ben closer to Dick, following in his footsteps and embodying his spirit. There was something magical about the serendipity of, of, the, of the experience. I was getting the sense of the riverbanks in the United States, that there was this hidden frontier kind of on the inland river, which were, of course, initially the earliest travel routes. Ben's research eventually put him in contact with a woman who had taken the last known photograph of Dick Conan. Her name was Paige, and she ran an independent bookstore in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. I think it was a Saturday night. She was getting ready to close, and she's working alone, and this very, very large man has come into the store, and her first thought is, uh-oh. But as often would happen, he gets over that initial hurdle and they start talking and she ends up talking to him for like more than an hour. She's just so taken with him. And so she took a picture of him. And in that picture, he's wearing several layers. He's got like a jacket over a sweatshirt, over a shirt, over the overalls. And he's carrying a kind of a Gatorade bottle and some shopping bags. You can see in that picture the sweetness of him and the vulnerability. The next day, Paige went looking for him. She remembers Dick saying he was departing in the morning. It was cold and rainy that day, and the water looked rough. Paige was hoping he had reconsidered. It looked dangerous. She looked up and down the river, hoping to spot a red canoe, but she never saw him again. As Ben was traveling the country, he was constantly hoping he would hear something about Dick. But he never did. Until fairly recently, I still would sometimes have dreams where the phone would ring and it would be another unknown number and I was going to answer it and it was going to be Dick Conant. Couldn't shake that one day. My whole world was going to be blown up by the fact that he had emerged somewhere and was calling to say, hey, what's up? Unfortunately, by the time I, I made it down to North Carolina, by the time the investigators were willing to recreate their steps in looking for him, that the best time to amass better clues had been lost. So, Ben just kept working. He painstakingly sorted through Dick's things, as well as his own findings from all his interviews, taking careful, detailed notes. Slowly, a fuller picture of Dick Conant began to emerge. I think, you know, it's kind of your initial assumption or the conventional idea of a, of a person like this is, you know, he's a loner, he's a recluse. And you don't think of a, of a recluse as being capable of making such lasting impressions. What I learned is that he had been, as a young man, he had been a star. He was an artist, he was a prankster, he was a very good student. He had tons of friends. Everything about his early life was sort of tinged with optimism. He thought he was going to be a doctor or he was going to be a lawyer. This was the kind of life that awaited someone like him. But none of that ever happened. Dick never became a lawyer or a doctor or a famous artist. Life just didn't work out that way. 
As more and more time passed with no word about Dick, Ben started to fantasize that he was still out there, living off the land, energizing his flavor buds with Tabasco, just red-faced, happy, and at peace. But he knows that's probably wishful thinking. He was not especially healthy. But I think the most likely thing that happened is he had a heart attack or a stroke. And if that happened, probably the reason his body hasn't been found is that maybe he tried to sort of tromp through the woods in the middle of a heart attack to find help. And so he died in a remote place, but not out on the water, so he couldn't be found by boats looking for him. That would be my best guess, but I'm still not that confident in it. But Ben also discovered Dick had written about his own death before. I don't mean in a kind of morbid, suicidal way but in the way of a wise man who had skirted death a number of times and sort of understood its inevitability and who was open about about the dangers of the things he was doing. He would write about what it would be like to die on a trip like this. He was as at peace with it as anyone could be. Ben started compiling his research into a manuscript. He wanted to tell Dick's story. And when he went missing, I felt a little bit rebuked by the world for not having protected him. And I know that that sounds ridiculous. This guy was grown up. He was a much hardier man than I was. I could never have done a lot of the things he did. I regretted not having done right by him. It was clear to me from all the the writing that he was doing that he wanted his story to be known. He went to somewhat extraordinary length to have his life amount to something. I had to fear, like, he might just kind of vanish and no one would be any the wiser for it. So I thought, well, the one thing I can do is I can rescue his story. And his story is pretty amazing. And I just have to piece it together. Ben's book came out last year. It's called Riverman, an American Odyssey. And it's a masterclass in research and storytelling. But it's also just such a labor of love. What emerges is a portrait of a really complex person. A man whose life didn't turn out the way he thought it would, whose wants and desires weren't always met but also a man who managed to make peace with himself in his own strange, unorthodox way. He would ultimately just like all the rest of us. He wanted to think well of himself. And so the singular trick, the kind of amazing thing he came up with was putting himself in a boat and setting himself afloat. And all of a sudden, once again, he's the center of everyone's attention. However, implausible. He figured out a way amid all the other hardships, poverty, homelessness, to become the popular person he had been in high school. And the way to do that was to get himself in a boat and paddle into town looking like a strange king. So the very fact that it hasn't been resolved is an open door to to the way we think about this story. Challenges us to think about what is possible and how many more things are possible than we are prepared to believe, I think there's something important to that. 
I have to be honest, my wife would certainly want me to acknowledge that I took longer on this project than maybe I ought to have. Because there was no clear resolution, it was easy to keep going. There's always like another bend around the river. Really, the pandemic and deadline forced you to bring it to a close. It had to end, even though I didn't want it to. Our storyteller today was Ben McGrath. This episode is dedicated to Dick Conant. Sadly, there is no ending to this story. Dick is still a missing person, and there have been no updates on his case since he vanished in 2014. Occasionally, Ben hears from someone who thinks they met Dick and will send him a photograph. It's never him, but who knows? Maybe someday it will be. This is the final episode of our season, and I really hope you've enjoyed it. Human Nature will be taking a short break while I work on new stories, but as always, keep an eye out for bonus content. For photos from this episode, make sure you're following us on social media. We're at Human Nature Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. On Twitter, we're at Human Nature Pod. And if you haven't already, go ahead and leave us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. It really helps out the show and helps more people discover us. I'm Megan Fury. This episode was produced by me, with help from Stephen Carroll. Our theme song is by Caught a Ghost. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media. It's human.